This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Simon de Burton. Simon, welcome. Ariel, thank you so much for having me. It's um, wonderful to be invited to, to talk to you on your on your podcast. I was just thinking the other I day. I appreciate it. I was wondering the other day. We've known each other for so many years, and um, I think we met in Japan, didn't we, on a on a Seiko trip? Must have been fifteen years ago or more. It was in two thousand nine. So everyone, Simon is a. Uh, a watch writer. He's a journalist and an author, and he's been doing this for a long time, longer than myself. And yeah, I think it was uh, in in Tokyo in 2009. Uh, I was the first, uh, I don't know what term they gave, blogger, <laughs> digital writer, whatever, uh, to been uh, invited to one of those trips. And um, that was almost the end of an era, right? Like that was an interesting it, turning point when, it, when the early 2000s ended and the 2010s started. It really was. End of an era, right? It certainly was. And I think at the time you weren't even called a blog to watch. You were called a blog to read. Yeah, yeah. That was just about the time when it was going from a blog to read to a blog to watch. So that was that was quite early on. That's right. I think it was a good move to change the name. <laughs> well, you know, when I started, I, I didn't know it was just going to be about watches. Sure. That's the thing. It was like yeah. an open-ended, like, I don't know what I'm going to write about. I quickly realized it was just going to be watches. But that's one of the funny things with blogs is some of the best ones began as this open-ended platform and got more narrow, whereas in the traditional publishing world, nothing nothing ever starts that open-ended, right? Exactly. And doesn't that just sort of demonstrate how things have changed in the watch world? Because, you know, you, you wouldn't imagine going into starting a blog or an Instagram page or whatever if you're passionate about watches and thinking, well, Maybe there won't be enough to talk about, which is obviously what you you know you originally thought. Maybe you're going to have to talk about other subjects because there's perhaps just not enough to say about watches, and that's only what 2009, 13 years ago, and now you know the whole subject has exploded, hasn't it? It has, it has. I remember early on when I was um, thinking about quitting my day job because in 2007 I started it all. In 2009, you know, I quit my day job to do a blog to watch, you know, full time. And I, and I was thinking about like, okay, what are the things I need to worry about? One, can I sit at a desk and write all day? I had never done that before. So I had no idea if I could do that. And then two, like you said, is there going to continue to be things to write about? And that has been one of the most surprising things. I don't think anyone talks about is in this weird quirky space, which is watches, which is, you know, niche and esoteric by nature. There's literally an endless amount of things to talk about, aren't there? It's extraordinary. It's funny you should say that because I was thinking the other day, since 2005, I've written columns about car watches for three different car magazines, starting with Octane, um, which I did for probably five or six years, and then Evo, which I did for another probably five. Evo is cool. And then for the past maybe seven or eight years, I'm not sure exactly, motorsports. So these columns yeah. have been specifically about car watches, a page and a sort of discussion about about different new car watches. And I was amazed to think about it the other day because I've never had, Goes a, on forever. never had a week <laughs> when a new car watch that's interesting hasn't come out. It's extraordinary. I, and, and I think that it's also interesting that there's a market that continues to want these things because at some point you and I 
we stop getting excited, right? Like we put ourselves in the shoes of collectors and are like, really? The 170th <laughs> chronograph we're driving? <laughs> exactly. And, and the people, there, there continues to be excitement. Do you think it's related to the fact that while we see all of it, it's unreasonable to think that most consumers do? And so for a lot of consumers, there aren't that many car watches. It's just that well, they don't know about all of them. Exactly. Well, it must be, mustn't it? Because, I mean, uh, only someone who is either completely obsessed with watches, and there are plenty of plenty of people like that, but a relatively small number compared with, <laughs> compared with the global population, or someone who has to, <laughs> has to keep looking at watch stuff every day because it's to do with their work. If you think of all the number of people who, you know, to be able to read about watches is something that is reserved for their spare time or, you know, it's a sort of luxury just to be able to sit down and read about them and, and learn about them. And those times when they're not doing that, all the stuff that we see perpetually is passing them by, isn't it? So everything must seem much fresher to people that don't constantly look, look and read about watches. So did it surprise you that during the pandemic, because people were at home and whatever, the amount of time people were spending reading about watches skyrocketed? Like, was that something that you're like, duh? Or was it surprising to you? Because that, no, that did happen. It wasn't surprising at it's all like... because of what I've just said, because <laughs> most people have lives, you know, whereas we're, our lives tend to revolve around the things that, that are to do with our work and they happen to be to be watches. And um, there was, I had a colleague, or a, he was a very good friend actually, um, called Michael Balfour, who was one of, I think we can say he was probably one of the first dedicated uh, watch writers. Um, and it was his idea, actually, for the Financial Times to start up a, uh, a watch supplement back in probably 97, 98. And the way he sold it to the paper was the fact that, look, everybody has a watch. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, virtually everyone in the world has a watch. And he said, if everyone's got... I hope so. Yeah. If everyone has a watch, why don't we have a dedicated, um, you know, a dedicated platform to talk talk about them and they thought well this is pretty reasonable and then they realized that you know the luxury goods uh conglomerates were getting into to buying watch brands and um obviously that had a commercial aspect to it so and it's been going ever since so you know that is now 25 years old that watch supplement now that is a particularly english thing this sort of like discussion of watches in a mainstream financial context it happens a little bit in the United States, not as much, but do you, you recognize, right? Obviously, you've known for a while now, but that that coverage of wristwatches in mainstream media is not common and that people who like watches have to seek this out for the most part because if you're just reading consumer publications, of which there seem to be not that many these days, no. to be honest, you're probably not going to just stumble upon watches. Exactly, yeah. But I, I agree with what you say. It's not that common, but equally it is slightly sort of, um, in some ways, it's the, the coverage in newspapers in this country um, seems slightly disproportionate, actually, to the, the, the level of interest in luxury watches. I mean, I think you'd agree. If you walk down the street anywhere, or maybe, maybe not anywhere, maybe not in, I don't know, Miami or in Singapore, <laughs> but in an average town in the States or in the UK, if you walk down the street and you stop 25 people and you said to them, how much would you spend on a watch or how much have you spent on a watch or what do you think a watch would cost? I'm fairly sure that at least 80% of them would be 
completely speechless at the idea that a watch could cost more than £10,000, $10,000. I think most people... I would agree with you until a couple of years ago, because here's something that happened. This is probably the most recent media development in our industry, is that the the value of expensive watches has been thrust into popular media so much yeah. from the price of a Rolex to the price of a Richard Mille to the price of the dictator's watch. There's been so much of that for the past, it's been more than five years, but it's been a lot over the last five yeah. years, a lot, that I think the mainstream person out there is now aware of the fact that there are crazy expensive watches in a way that, you're right, just up until a few years ago, the average person just simply had no way of being able to put a number on it. They just couldn't fathom it. Exactly, yeah. And I, I still think even today, the, the majority of people just wouldn't comprehend spending. Yeah, but do you see what I mean with like with, with pop culture media, how yeah. watch prices, social media, people are like, look at this watch I bought, or here's the watch that got of stolen, course, yeah. or here's the watch that's so-and-so wearing that was a fake, and the real one's worth a million. Like, you'd never, like 10 years ago, not one time in media have you ever seen million dollars and like watch in the same headline. Oh, and then course. it just happened over and over and over again. Rafa Nadal wearing million dollar yeah. watch in tennis, million dollar Rolex, da 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 yeah. da da. Like you just saw so much of that. Well, it's true. And, and also, in sort of in the vintage market, if you think about it, it's only, it's not exactly 10 years, but it's not much more than 10 years that the first vintage Rolex made more than a million. You know, prior to that, there was, it was that plus million dollar market was completely dominated by Patek, wasn't it? Yeah. And, you know, that's a world that you had some experience and you worked um, in the auction world a little bit. Explain that background and and maybe what you as a journalist uh, got out of that. Well, uh, that's quite interesting, actually, because as a as a young person, um, I, you know, very young, sort of 10, 12, whatever, I, I always loved mechanical things and I did like watches. And my first watch, my first mechanical watch um, was bought for me by my father when I was probably about five years old. And we were going on holiday and we stopped off at a newspaper shop. Um, and in those days, in newspaper shops, in uh, certainly in the UK, there would quite often be a sort of plastic um, display tower on the, on the counter. And it would be filled with watches. And there'd be watches by, you know, um, typically by uh, companies called like West Clocks. I don't know if you've ever heard of them i was a scottish uh, mechanical watchmaker and okay. and smiths which was you know the biggest um english producer of watches for for many years they were they were making something like at one point they were making something like five hundred thousand mechanical movements a week which is <laughs> it's just incredible. Wow. hard to believe now but um because you know in the 70s as you know, the quartz, when the quartz restaurant came out in 69, it was hugely expensive, wasn't it? It was a real sort of revolution. Yeah, it was like a car. Yeah. Well, it's, I suppose you could compare it to the electric cars of today, can't you? No. It's because it's a new thing. They're, they're disproportionately expensive, considering, particularly considering, you know, one of the great things about an electric car is it's got very few moving parts in its powertrain. So you'd think that it right. would be just a lot a, Just an expensive <laughs> battery with, a, with an appliance built over it. Exactly. Anyway, so... Um, what I'm trying to say is I was interested in watches, but not to a degree that I knew what a Vachon Constantin was or, a, or even a Patek Philippe. You know, to me, for many years, writing through my teenage years, an expensive watch was a Rolex, and, and that was about it. And then um, <clears throat> when I went to work at Sotheby's in the, in the early 90s, 
um, I worked there as a press officer and I was given the departments in what they call the collector's division, which was basically things that weren't traditional um, fine art. So not impressionist paintings and, um, <clears throat> and not sculpture and that sort of thing, but it was all what they call collector's division pieces, such as musical instruments, um, rock and roll memorabilia, classic cars, and marine and nautical memorabilia and uh, musical instruments and watches, watches. And so to give an idea of how <clears throat> the whole world of watches has moved on since the mid-90s, when I went into the department for the first time, it was run by a lady called Tina Miller who'd set up the watch department in the 60s. And they were in a very small room and they were predominantly selling pocket watches. Even in the early 90s, it was antique pocket watches is what they were called, not not vintage or they were called antique pocket watches. And I was chatting to her generally about wristwatches which were starting to come in. And I said, you know, what, what sort of, what's a good watch? You know, what's an interesting watch that I should be looking out for? And she said, well, <clears throat> what I like is a company you won't have heard of and it's called the International Watch Company. <laughs> and I said, oh, right. And she said, sometimes they call it IWC. So That's funny. That just gives you an idea of how things have changed because, I mean, anyone in our world, IWC is just, it's a, it's a key brand, isn't it? <clears throat> but um, Yeah, and it wasn't even talked about. It wasn't even talked there. about. And, you know, to see one at auction was, was pretty, pretty rare because, you know, an IWC pilot's watch was probably worth £400 or something like that, £500 at auction. And then, to further demonstrate my ignorance of the of the watch world, at, uh, back in the nineties, the early nineties, I used to go to work by motorbike. And one day, I was trying to mend something on my motorbike in the, in the sort of parking area. And this guy turned up on a BMW and sort of bumped it up onto the pavement. He was dressed in sort of kind of fisherman's waterproof clothes, <laughs> and uh, I was tinkering on with this engine. And he came over and he said, "Have you got a, a problem with this thing?" And I said, "I have actually." And I said, "I just can't sort it out." And I remember he had the most enormous hands, this, this man. And he bent down and he twiddled a couple of bolts. And he said, there, he said, I think you're going to find it's okay now. Anyway, I didn't realize that this was George Daniels. And um, Yeah, when you said the hands, <laughs> I was like, this, I think this is George Daniels. And um, I, we sort of introduced ourselves. I said, oh, what, what do you do? He said, oh, I'm, I'm a consultant with the watch department. <laughs> I said, oh, great. You know, I do a bit of work for the watch department. I'm sure we'll be in touch kind of thing. Um, not realizing, you know, they say hindsight is a wonderful thing, but uh, we got on pretty well. And if I'd said to him, you know, could I buy one of your watches for whatever they cost? And if, I, I mean, People should know, I got to say that he was um, an automotive mechanic and he was also quite a genius there. And that that was also part of his mechanical uh, uh, knowledge, not just brisk watchmaking. Well, well, I think if, if anyone who's listening who is remotely interested in true handcrafted watchmaking or to read George's book, which is called All in Good Time. And he explains early on that the reason he became um, a watchmaker in the way that he, he did become a watchmaker, i.e. someone who sold watches, was to finance um, the restoration of his cars because he was a huge fan of Bentleys. And the, uh, he managed to buy a Bentley three-liter um, when he was quite young for very little money, which, and the car was completely wrecked. And he rebuilt it in a, in a single garage, which is so narrow that it, it, the car basically Incredible. had to be completely against the wall on one side just so he could get down the other side 
um, in order to be able to sort of access parts of it. And um, what was so great about a three liter Bentley? I'm just cur- out of curiosity. Well, it was just the, the, the sort of classic pre-war Bentley, you know, beautiful engineering, which is what he appreciated. Um, that fantastic six cylinder engine, you know, they used to call them, you know, the, the fastest lorries on earth, didn't they? You know, because they were so heavily built and well engineered. Right. And he just just loved cool. the, the, the the Britishness of them and the and the engineering is what he really loved. But he worked so hard on the cars and the watches that um, I think it's documented in his book as well. He was riding his motorcycle along Piccadilly in London one day, and he suddenly woke up, basically lying on the pavement, and um, just didn't know what had happened. And um, he went to the doctor, and the doctor said, "You know, tell me about your your life. What you you know, what do you do for work?" And he said, "Well, um, I uh, get up in the morning and um, I work on my cars for between ten and twelve hours, <laughs> and then I work on watches for seven hours. And then I have something to eat. Uh, and then I go to sleep, and then I start get up and start all over again. So he, he was working for sort of." basically 20 hours a day, and he, which he'd been doing for two or three years and just become totally exhausted. But um, oh wow! as a result of that, he was able to build up his business. And through the cars, he met, um, <clears throat> well, I don't want to tell you the whole history of George Daniels because people can find out for themselves, but he met um, through the Vintage Sports Car Club, a man called Sam Clutton, who was um, a very, well, pretty much the biggest collector of Breguet uh, pocket watches um, in Europe, I think, at the time. And Sam realized George had incredible talent and he sort of employed him to look after his pocket watch collection, his Breguet pocket watch collection, which is how he became such um, such an expert expert on, on Breguet. But um, anyway, so that was how I got interested in watches through learning through the watch department at Sotheby's about all the different different uh, makes. And I, w- I want to mention something there, which is important about that opportunity that Mr. Daniels had to work on those breguets. This industry has this sort of like strange series of brilliant mind meets opportunity to restore something. Like this is a common thing Mm -hmm. uh, or brilliant mind has opportunity to like build the super clock for the king or some crazy thing like that. Like it's opportunity plus aspiration, which is what's responsible for these things. And you can't just have person with aspiration because we today you and I all the time meet all these young chaps with aspirations to build the next great watch, no money mm-hmm. to do so. And to get money for it, they fall into these traps that eventually consume them. And it's interesting how, despite all this corporate money out there, it's still very difficult for some of these, these talents to get their ideas made. And you talk to any of the corporate brands, what do they say? It's horrible for creatives here. We need more creatives, but it's otherwise horrible for creatives here. Do you agree? Well, I totally agree, yes. And the reason for that is that, um, you know, these big organizations, you know, well, we know who they are, Richemont, LVMH, you know, they've got humongously valuable brand names. That's why, that you know, that's why they've gone out and bought these brand names. You don't need to waste time sponsoring someone to be creative and to come up with the next great idea when you've got a fantastic brand name, do you? I mean, that's... But don't they? Well, well, no, because how long is it going to take, um, you know, an individual like Kari Vutilainen, he can make a great living on his own producing watches in small numbers. But a company like Richemont and LVMH, they want 
They want multiple. Yeah, but Kari's a hustler. Not everyone can do what he does. Get get the machines, get the infrastructure to do it. it yeah, like, you know yeah, what I'm talking he about. He does it in a low-key way. But I mean, anyone who really, um, people who follow him, they, they think of him as this sort of artisan watchmaker. They don't know about his dial factory. They don't know about his case-making factory. No. Um, but what, what I'm saying is that these these big luxury groups, they've acquired um, blue chip dial names, haven't they? And they can sell those in quantity. Obviously, they don't really like to talk about the quantities. We know that. They'll never, you know, you'll never find from, Swatch is never going to tell you how many Omega Speedmasters are selling in the year. But to to get those multiples going through, you know, from a, from a, new, a new maker, it, it's difficult, isn't it? Because people basically, the majority of people want something they want a name that they recognize and they feel confident in, which is, which is why Rolex, I think, I think is officially the most trusted brand name in the world. And it's, it's Yeah, but Rolex doesn't exactly sit on their hands. Maybe they don't come out with new designs, but their watches do change. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that even if you buy a very good brand, if you don't keep injecting energy into it, mm. the value of the brand will precipitously go down. Oh, well, well, will it? I mean, do you think, do you think Rolex would sort of cease to exist if they carried on making exactly the watches they're making now. I mean, the, I think that Rolex MT appreciates Submariner. a certain high level of marketing dollars need to go in an R&D. Uh, Hans Wilsdorf created a structure that ensured that money would always go into R&D and that would always go into marketing. And so Rolex has to spend that money. They don't know what to spend it on half the time. That's why they make the most conservative decisions. Exactly, yeah. But I believe that they're required by their structure to actually keep investing in those areas. Oh, cool. I, t I totally understand that and agree with it. And it obviously is what ha what's happening. But I, I thought your original, um, the original premise was talking about young creatives trying to get into, trying to make a name for themselves in, in the watchmaking game. And I, I, I'm just trying to explain why I think it's, it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, um, no doubt, you're right. I'm simply saying there seems to be a lot of money to be made with the combination of someone with the industrial know-how and the ideas to do something different. And when you combine those, that's when new stuff ha seems to happen. So there seems to be more investment that could be happening in just trading new stuff to see how the market likes it. Um, the Japanese brands, which are very successful, part of their business strategy is just coming up with crazy stuff and seeing what happens. I mean, look at the Japanese market. It's always had all these weird things. Yeah. It's a test bed. Like they have no problem just putting random things on the market, don't care yeah. if there's any plan behind it. And sometimes they come up with amazing stuff. Yeah. But in Europe, you don't see that. No. No. Well, I think that's probably probably because of the con conservative nature of um of European buyers. Because, you know, as I say, they do they like to to, to buy watches. They recognize they recognize the name and they recognize the um the features of the thing and a lot of it is it's a sort of tribal thing isn't it you know that, that's a very that's a very strong element of of watch collecting is that that tribal thing people wanting to have the the, the great watch that many other people have got you know which is why the 5711 is so popular i suppose and the but it, it depends on what your tribe values so you've indicated that certain tribes respect tried and true designs absolutely correct but other tribes uh, maybe respect originality. Maybe other tribes respect flashiness. In a in a multi-tribal society, different tribes are going to value different things than watches, right? Definitely, yeah. But uh, equally, if you're talking about 
the ones that are going to be sold in large numbers and therefore going to be deemed to be really successful. I think convention seems to be the the sort of way forward. The, people are generally conventional, aren't they? They're, they're nervous about, you know, many people are nervous about sort of trying something new or unusual because they feel it won't be, that they'll be looked upon as, you know, having chosen the wrong thing or that they're wearing something weird or... You're presenting what I call the, the British argument. Well, it's, it's true. That's exactly how, how it's thought. But it, and if you think about it, a good example of that, I think, anyway, I'm sure you remember when Audemars Piguet launched the Code 1159. It was a dark year. Well, it was a dark year, but <laughs> don't you think somebody decided, uh, I mean, there are many less attractive watches on the market, and I think there were many less attractive watches released at exactly the same time as that 11.59. But somebody decided, we're going to really give this watch a hammering. And other people obviously thought, well, okay, yeah, that's probably along the right lines. Let's follow that person and agree. And I even saw people criticizing it who were clearly just repeating things that they had read on um, Instagram or on blogs or wherever. But do you honestly think that watch was so bad? that it deserved that much criticism? I was critical of a few things, and that mainly had nothing to do with the way it looked. I didn't like how it was released. I didn't like some of the more strategic things. I thought that the dials were lazy. I think the case was interesting, and I appreciated them for trying something new. But you're right, the, the, the hate went above and beyond that. Which just seems extraordinary to me, and it, and it just made me think about, you know, when the Royal Oak was launched, that, that wasn't particularly well-received, was it? And look at it now. I mean, No, none of these things are well-received. That's what everyone needs to know. Everything new is received poorly. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's new, received poorly. Mm. Guaranteed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, I just wanted to point out that like this conservative sort of versus more liberal mindset about design or what watch you're going to get is a, a common sort of discussion in the industry and i i mean maybe disagree try to position myself as sort of advocating for like the liberal side not that i always even think that way but i feel like it so heavily leans on the conservative angle that you speak about mm -hmm. that like at those dinner parties like i have to be like can someone think about doing something new i'm going to stand for that position you know what i mean sure yeah well and I, I, I think a very good example of how conservative the majority of people buying these things are if you think back to when Cartier decided to become really radical, do you remember about what twelve years ago, thirteen years ago? And they, okay. they would have the um, they had the Cartier Fine Watchmaking Club. Do you remember? And they used to invite uh, us journalists once a year to go along and see the latest crazy developments in in watchmaking. And they created yeah. the um, was it the ID one? Yeah, the ID one. Which, they had the ID two. And I remember interviewing uh, Bernard Fournas, who was. Uh, in charge then for the FT for for um, a video, and he said that this movement, which apparently uh, the idea of it was that once it was uh, set and put into the watch, it would never need adjusting or recalibrating, and it was. And he said to me quite seriously, he said this movement and this ID one watch represents to watchmaking what the arrival of fuel injection meant to the motor car, and he was absolutely serious about it. And then what happened to all that sort of future thinking um, and sort of uh, ingenuity and all the things that they were trying to do with that, um, that new 
that new um, approach by Cartier to watchmaking is just completely disappeared, isn't it? And they've returned to the thing that they do best, which is basically just just um, aesthetics and design. Well, let's 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 talk about this for a second. You bring up an excellent point. What comes to my mind is the idea that disruption that that was a disruptive product. That disruption is bad for business. Disruption in the form of quartz was really bad for the for the mechanical watch industry. And I think that by design, today's luxury watch industry is disruption resistant. That's why everything is is incorporated so slowly. The initial response to everything is no. They're allergic to any kind of disruption because they're worried about it messing with the uh, the, the fundamental juice of what, what's going on. I think they're wrong, but I think you'll agree that anything which is seen as disruptive. Or, or remember, if Rolex comes out with a fundamentally more accurate watch today, it invalidates all those other mechanical watches, and they sell timelessness. Yeah. So they can't really make watches today that perform that much better than yesterday because it kills that timeless appeal that, that, that has been part of the story they've been building for so long. Well, I agree. And, and I mean, accuracy is a whole other subject, isn't it? Because, I mean, the accuracy of a mechanical watch is sort of irrelevant. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning, if I put a watch on I haven't worn for a while, I set it by my wife's quartz alarm clock that her father gave her about 40 years ago. And it's got a... <laughs> <laughs> but it's always right. Roughly, you know, within a minute or whatever. I, I mean, does anybody really care if they look at their watch and, the, you know, it's precisely to the second the time? I, I think these factories care about the idea that they want you to buy a watch, have the watch somehow become bad, and then you buy another one. So they have to, like, play this weird line or between these two lines, which is, one, this product is going to last forever. And when it breaks, we wind to buy a new one. Like, you know what I mean? Like, service is a big way they make money. Yeah. And it's part of the narrative of don't, you know, send your watch back and get it fixed so we can live on. Like, you know, it, it's, I, I hate to say it, but there's really a businessman's mindset behind a lot of the things that they try to be like, well, we love our watches so much. <laughs> we want to service them forever. Like, no, you want to make money. On well, I mean, they, we, yeah, I mean, there's no denying that. That's, that's why they exist, isn't it? I mean, none of these, you know, all this talk about passion, you know, passion for watchmaking and the history and everything. I think before Simon, we, it's passion for money making. Well, it's passion for money making. And I think we were talking before we actually started recording, we were talking about the fact that the entire luxury goods industry is being sold on a historic premise, isn't it? Which dates back to the times when you really couldn't make things in large quantities if you were going to do them really well. And the people that bought them, they weren't buying them so they could stick their Patek Philippe in the face of the guy sitting next to them at the dinner table and say, oh, look at, as somebody did to me actually the other day, Look at my new Patek Philippe. These people bought them because they had heard about them being of top quality. And while they were expensive, they were not ludicrously expensive compared to a more regular watch. But you did need a substantial amount of money to buy them. And once you had bought them, you knew you had something that was really good. It was going to last. You never thought it's going to be worth more in 20 years' time. Yeah, let's let's explain an experience that has never happened to anyone living today. This is sometime in the past. You're you're on your way to a meeting. You think you're on time. 
you get there only to realize your watch, unbeknownst to you, is five minutes back, you know, late or something like that, and you're embarrassed. And everyone's like, "Hey, dummy, what kind of watch do you have? You need to get a new watch." Like this happened to people all the time, and no one living today has ever experienced exactly. it one time. Exactly. You know, these things are bought. It's, it's the same with cars. You know, a Bentley or a Rolls Royce is bought because it was a fantastic piece of engineering, not because. Not specifically because you could say to your mate, look, I've got a Bentley. Aren't I successful? Aren't I wealthy? It was bought because it was a a well-made object and it was expected to last. Yeah, the idea of these things was was that they they were great quality and the only people who could afford them were obviously wealthy people and they were the pool of wealthy people was very small. And because these things were all genuinely handmade, inevitably they couldn't make many of them. But and and the entire luxury goods market today is based on that premise, you know, on on a historical premise of luxury. Whereas now we know that we're not we're not really talking about handmade objects. Fair enough, wristwatches are put together by hand and they're finished by hand. And the finish of something like a, to me anyway, to look at a Langer watch, I think is still an incredible piece of craftsmanship. I mean, if you look through the back of a of a Langer um, chronograph, I mean, it's breathtaking, isn't it? The finish and the yeah, no doubt, detail. no doubt, it's and gorgeous. That really, that really is something that you can sort of understand why it's so expensive. But it, it it's a different it's a different sort of craftsmanship nowadays. To 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 the to so you're having a crisis with the value, right? That's and again, it's okay. Like we all as people who are watch specialists, we have crisis of faith from time to time. And you're having a, a crisis of faith if the industry can continue to assert value propositions when it's so accessible today to get a great watch for a relatively low amount of money. Is that is that more or less part of what you're thinking? Well, I certainly do think that. Yeah, I certainly do think that. What do you th- what do you think is the, the real danger? Is this a new thing? Has this never happened before? Can anything be done about it? Can anything be done about 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 what about? Well, about this erosion in the sense of value. Do watch prices just need to come down? Do expensive watches need to get better? Is it something else? Well, I don't think watch prices can come down because I mean it's always struck me that the entire, particularly the Swiss industry, uh, it's a sort of giant cartel, isn't it? You know, we're sold. We're told all the, the the stories the whole time about you know the difficulty of making certain things. They love saying that, don't they? You know. We've done this. It's been so difficult. It's taken us X number so of years. So hard. <laughs> it's so hard. And, you know, we were always told... I had to quit my life as a surgeon <laughs> and saving lives to make this little mechanical thing work. <laughs> and we were always told, weren't we, you know, when... I mean, nowadays, watch watch releases happen on a virtually... On a weekly basis, don't they? Whereas sort of 10, 12 years ago, you'd go to SHH or watch someone, as, it, as it's called now, and Baselworld and... Of those two shows, you would see the new watches for the year, wouldn't you? And and that would be more or less it. But now, I think particularly post post COVID, their new watch releases the whole time. It's impossible, virtually impossible, to keep up with them. And so, you think there's too many releases? Well, no. I, uh, what I'm saying is that we were always led to believe that, that the reason there were these limited number of releases was that it took so long to develop and design them, weren't we? We were always told, oh, it's five years, you know, from the drawing board to production because there's so much to think about in between. It's so difficult. But it, it sounds well, like for a period of time you actually drank the Kool Aid, which I'm impressed by. Of course I did, yeah. <laughs> of course I did, and, and promoted it. <laughs> but um, 
Okay, so you, you were at the auction house, and then was it from there that you went on to uh, being an independent writer, or where did you go from there? Well, I did. I, I um, initially, um, in 19... Uh, because I worked in the press office, I used to sort of obviously interact with journalists a lot, and there was one particular person who had been um, a correspondent for the Press Association for many years, 25 years, actually. And he had left the Press Association. He was working, doing sort of shifts for the Times. And um, his wife, uh, or girlfriend, I think she was, was a, um, what they called, was a stamp agent. I, she went to stamp auctions, and she would buy stamps for multiple collectors. So she would have, you know, bidding paddles, 10 bidding Like paddles. old stamps? Like vintage stamps? Yeah, yeah. Yes, okay. Not yeah. Not, sta- not, the stamp co- is that still a thing, right? Stamp collecting. Stamp collecting, huge. Yeah, still the most valuable object by weight in the world. A stamp. Well, by weight, of course. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he um, he called me one day from the, the Times and he said, "Look, uh, my partner, whatever she was, has brought home this stamp catalogue, and inside is uh, a lot, and it's described as the Watford stamp, uh, the Watford um, revenue stamp forgery." And somebody had produced a whole set of albums about these um, tax stamps, which were being produced in the uh, in the late nineteenth century. And the printers had realised that these stamps had a had a value; it could be exchanged for money. And so, during a night shift, they would run the machines a bit longer and print <laughs> a few thousand off for themselves, and you know, divide them up. And this person heard about this thing and became very interested and produced these these albums, which included fake stamps. Um, they included genuine stamps. They included the names of the cool. people who were involved in it. And um, bearing in mind this is in something like 1880, they had managed to defraud um, the Inland Revenue out of something like three million pounds over, I mean, a staggering amount of money. Anyway, this person, um, I'm telling you about this journalist. He he phoned up and he said, could I write about this? And I said, yes. And then from that, he developed um, an agency specializing in auction stories, writing about auction stories for the national newspapers, which nowadays wouldn't work. Um, and now, had, It's because the items were curiosities and kind of interesting, right? Yeah, it was a story. It was a great story, you know. Um, and it made, yeah. you know, a, a half page in a couple of papers, the Times and the Telegraph. And from that, he had this this journalist had the idea to set up an agency writing about interesting auction stories. And it was at the time when, um, you know, great things were coming out in the world of rock and roll memorabilia. You know, Lennon lyrics, Jimi Hendrix's guitar, um, all these sort of fantastic things. And so the stories were were kind of ready made. It was raised to write them, and um, nobody else is doing it. And he became so busy that he asked me to go and work with him because I knew the auction business and I'd previously been a, uh, a normal journalist, sort of a, you know, a news journalist. Um, and that's what we did. So we... Um, Interesting. Uh, and uh, the watch stories didn't really exist very much at the time until 1999. And um, the Henry Graves Super Complication came up for sale. And I received the catalog. You remember it was Seth Atwood's Time Museum. Um, it's a bit before my time. I know the story, yeah. but I was a kid at the time. Exactly. Well, <laughs> um, well, Seth Atwood had this incredible watch and clock collection, and, and in there was the Patek Philippe um, super complication, the Graves watch, you know? 
and yeah. it sold at auction and um, was probably the first. It was probably the first watch that made it into the national newspapers because of the the price. I mean, I think it was. I can't you remember now. I think it was six million. 11 it was a lot of money for the late 80s. It was, it was 11 million dollars, I seem to remember. Yeah, it was a crazy um, amount. And then I wrote about that watch, and it was in, in a few newspapers. And because the pool of people writing about watches was so small, it was basically limited, as I said, to Michael Balfour and to Nick Fawkes in the UK. He used to do, um, you know, watch column for the Evening Standard and various other places. He, he, he was very much at the sort of forefront of watch writing. But because the pool of watch writers was so small, Patek Philippe contacted me and invited me to the launch of their Star Caliber pocket watch, which was um, another super complicated pocket watch created to mark the millennium. And they um, they launched it in 1999 on the basis that it was the turn of the millennium. And to give an indication of how the watch market has changed, I mean, if, if they were to launch today one of the most complicated watches ever made and it cost five million dollars it was actually for this for the set the five watches i mean how many people do you think they would invite to the event the launch event i mean a sizable amount sure i mean it's going to be three or four hundred isn't it i would have thought maybe more uh, I mean, th- they could they could invite in the thousands of people that would be interested in attending. Well, I remember being invited to this to this to this event, and it was in a pretty small room, and I think there were probably about sixty people there. And wow, they had this most phenomenal film of a camera uh, made by a camera that went inside the move inside the pocket watch movement and followed it all around while it was running. It was quite amazing. It was, you know, nowadays things like that are common aren't they you know because uh, technology has advanced so much but this is on i still got it got it it was on a, a vhs videotape and you you know we were completely sort of dumbstruck by the complexity of this this watch and um <clears throat> so i wrote about that for for the ft uh, magazine and then as a result of that other brands started to get in to get in touch and in fact one of the first was iwc but they didn't have any sort of marketing person in the UK, and the they had an outside agency they employed in Paris, and this this external PR came over on the Eurostar to meet me for a cup of coffee, you know, to sort of introduce herself and to introduce me to IWC. So from that, you know, got writing into uh, got into writing about watches and that, you know, and, and you know what happened after that? It just suddenly exploded. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch, and I've been using eBay to find watches for over 20 years. eBay is one of the world's largest marketplaces for timepieces. A luxury wristwatch is sold on eBay every seven seconds. And did you know there isn't any safer place to get watches? All luxury watches sold on the platform are covered by the industry's most robust customer protection policies. What makes eBay so confident is its exclusive authenticity guarantee service, which has a third party physically check each watch before it gets to you. In the United States, that's done through Stolen Company in Ohio. And among other things, it means that fakes are never an issue. eBay is also a great place to sell your watches, but you probably already knew that. Do what I do and check eBay before all of your next watch purchases. And you've seen the industry fundamentally change a number of times 
did it surprise you the first few times you got used to it? Or does it still sort of shock you every single time the industry is just like, okay, here we go again. Everyone's going to stop and change positions. Well, the first, you know, in the early days, in the early 2000s, that was the basic, that, that was the revolution, wasn't it, in in, in, in the watch business when it, it went from a really, really niche product. You know, these luxury watches were, were niche, weren't they? I mean, people just, very few people bought them or knew the names or, I should think in in, 20 years ago, I think the number of people who you could stop in the street and say, have you heard of Vachon Constantin? Uh, it'd be a miracle if you met anyone, certainly in, in England. In the US, exceedingly small number of people. Exactly. And then also at that time, was that there was that crazy sort of, um, in the early 2000s, before uh, the Lehman Brothers thing in 2008, there was that crazy sort of rush of development, wasn't there? You know, who can make the biggest watch, the craziest watch, you know, the things like those Concorde watches, yeah. with, you know, liquid in them, which, you know, led on to HYT and so on. And, um, you know, Vacheron, for example, made those. It was making, um, using the watch dial as a sort of canvas for art, you know, the way Vacheron Constantin. Yeah, the, the, the Metier de Art Yeah, Metier de And you know how they made the um, Les Masques, they were called. There's... Yeah, those are cool. Based based on um, on tribal masks from the Babi Amulam Museum. Yeah, and then they had the every year they'd come out with one of those, and they had those like uh, disc based little wind ind- indicator windows on the side. Exactly, and it, and it was it was just a crazy time of sort of a, a bit uh, going back to what you were speaking of before about uh, imagination and um, you know thinking outside the norms of of watchmaking. It was just happening all the time then. All these incredible... And the funny thing is when I was getting into watches, that was the exact era, about yeah. 2001. So for me, that's just what the wa- the watch industry was. Like, I didn't know any other way and I didn't realize it had been so boring for so yeah. long and that that was sort of a well, very exactly. temporary blip. And you'd go to these watch shows and you wouldn't be thinking, oh gosh, I wonder, you know, what Rolex has done to the Submariner. <laughs> you'd be thinking, what crazy thing is... You know, you go to the Girard Perigo stand and, oh, yes, this is our jackpot tourbillon. It's a huge square watch with a handle on the side. <laughs> you pull the handle and it's a, a one-armed bandit watch. It's a watch. But it was always a mystery buyer, right? Yeah, like, there was buyer. these amazing watches at these prices. Nobody you know could, could afford or buy them. No one I knew could afford or buy them. So we were, like, shown these amazing things with prices that like just, you know, they just became numbers at, at some point with the big question was like, who was who was wearing them? Like you didn't have in any other industry in the car industry. Like this is who's buying it. You see them on the road and like the clothing industry. You'd see who's wearing. In the watch industry, it was like this weird secret of like whoever bought them, right? Well, it was. And also you never really knew. You know, we, all, we all sucked it up, but we never really knew if these things were produced and actually worked. And but, but, but it, <laughs> well, they didn't all work. Exactly. We know that. But it, but it was a time of sort of incredible sort of invention, wasn't it? I mean, if you think about uh, the, what, another one that sticks out in my mind is the um, when Gégé produced for the seventy fifth anniversary of the Reverso, the Reverso a triptyque. Do you remember that a watch with three dials? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was uh-huh. just incredible, you know. And they were all connected, you know. The the, the case, the the, the case. The cradle that the reversible main watch head sat in also contained a dial. It was just incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was huge, too. Yeah. <laughs> in a cool way. Yeah, yeah. That was a George Daniels size reverse, though. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but um, that sort of creativity, is, it's gone now, hasn't it? You know, 
You know, the most exciting thing that you see now well, is you, you see, a, you know, a green dial. You know, somebody makes a green dial, everyone's suddenly making green. It's just so, it's such an incredible lack of imagination. I've always seen it as a reflection of the economy. You know, I always look at everything from an economic standpoint and incentives. If there's money and originality and crazy stuff, it will be made. Yeah. If there isn't, it'll stop. What's happening right now is a new resurgence, right? There's a brand new the kind of era where like, I wouldn't say it's as innovative in all ways, but there's a new surge of micro brands, startups that are going decidedly high end. I've started to see some of them. I don't know how many will survive, mm -hmm. but there's a new push to be the next great, you know, two, $200,000, $300,000 watch. A lot of people want to be the next or work. I hear that statement all the time. I don't know if it's that easy or if it's that, that doable, but I just I'm just sort of saying colleague to colleague, Simon, I think it's interesting that we're about to see that. Now, the problem, and this is the main problem, it used to be that the Orworks of the world benefited from shows like Basel World. You would yeah. go there to meet with all the big brands, and then you and I would just, you know, would stumble around and be like, oh, who's this cool thing over here? This is nice. But we weren't there to find just things to stumble stumble upon. And that is how so many brands became a thing by riding on the coattails of these massive exhibitions. Exactly. Now, Watches and Wonders, which still has some, you know, availability for those groups, it doesn't really have a low-cost entry, entry option. I mean, it's still well, no, a I, lot. I remember going to, to Basel World, I forget what year it was, it's probably 2002 or something like that, and Grubel Forsey was you you went upstairs and that area was all for um <laughs> independent little brands and the booth the booth they had was so small that it was literally a case of one at a time to go in if stephen forty was in there quite a big yeah, it was a joke um it was literally one person could go in and it was probably six feet square if that you know it was tiny and there were several of them all along and all these interesting independent brands like vogard you remember vogard mike vote and his um, yeah, I remember Michael Vogel. Yeah, he had a tiny little stand there, but it would be you know thronging with people because they were so interested in that very clever um, mechanism that, I mean, at the time was revolutionary, where you could just turn the bezel and it would reset the time of the, the watch to your new time zone. without. And then as he exited, he sold the patent to IWC. Yeah, and what's happened to it? I mean... They made they made a pile. They made it and they made they made they made one or two watches, and it's now petered out. But I mean, of all these sort of inventions and complications, it, uh, to me that was really useful because you didn't have to twiddle on with the crown or, or pushes or anything. You just turn the bezel and turn it back. I've still got the watch; it still works perfectly. It's great. But um, I, I think it's worth saying. Remember, innovation is disruptive, and they don't like disruptive things. Exactly. I, I believe that now. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think, I, I think it's fair to say he didn't really get, I don't know if other people think it was a, a, a clever idea, but I certainly do. I don't think he really got the credit for it that he, that he deserved because, you know, IWC uh, or Richemont bought it from him and created that pilot's watch. And, you know, as we've just said, it's kind of, it seems to sort of petered out. They did develop it, well, made it, made it more, a more elegant he, mechanism. But um, he wanted an out. Yeah. He pushed really hard. And the deal was basically, I will shut down my brand and you won't have competition. Please buy my patent. They made one or two watches out of it. It was fine. No one really understood it that much. I mean, remember, IWC is, is a brand that cannot market watch functionality. Like, if they have a new 
feature on a pilot watch, that brand has no ability to tell you about that at all. Their marketing isn't set up for that at all. So again, the the Richemont brands, like you said, are selling like something that is like set in carbonite, right? Like it is just a particular image and it's a look and you just rinse and repeat as much as you can within like one degree of separation from the, the core. They're not interested in innovation because it seems to go against that like that timelessness. We want an IWC today and 20 years ago to be just as relevant. And if you if you actually make the ones today better, then I think that they 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 fear that they're killing this like timelessness thing. I truly believe that because look at all the times they've just completely ignored um you know improvements. I mean, look at with silicon. Like everyone agrees you put silicon in there it'll be much better. They just don't want to do it. No. But it, it's what we were saying before though, isn't it? It's it, it's selling a name on a historical, uh, the historical pretext, and and it works, doesn't it? You know, people love the story of the big pilot watch. They love, you know, the fact that it was worn in the cockpit, and that's why they they, they sell them. You know, that's why. Okay, but si- here's the thing. I agree, but Simon, look, you have to agree. Those brands thrive as much as they hate to admit it on repeat business. Hmm. You can only sell somebody that same story so many times before they get bored and move on. Brand loyalty, in my opinion, is an extremely valuable commodity that not that many brands get. Bever got it. And he and he made sure that if you liked Hublot, you'd have a reason to buy it like multiple times a year. It didn't matter if you didn't like them all. He was trying to, to, to appeal to that repeat buyer. Mm. Like certain brands just don't seem to care. Well, no, because at the moment they, they they it seems like as if they as if they don't don't need to. I mean, Panerai is trying to do something different with. I mean, they, <clears throat> one of the great things with when Angelo Bonatti, um, who basically was put in charge of Panerai when it was you know a box of a few design drawings and some not very good prototype watches. His his main aim was to keep that that Panerai look and the Panerai sort of tool watch nature. And not change it at all, but over yet over the years, that's had to evolve, hasn't it? And they're, you know, they're making smaller watches. They make, they've just done it, you know, that um, with a, with a watch with a with an all gold bracelet, and it's moving away right. from that sort of um, dive watch, military watch. Well, they've really done everything possible. I mean, how yep. many more? I mean, come on! At this point, it's getting hard to come up with a new pattern. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But. His fundamental thinking at the beginning was: we mustn't lose the original um, nature of this of this design. But the, as you as you've just pointed out, there's only so much you can do before you have to start straying off the path. And you know, there, there's this obsession with offering something new the whole time, isn't there? You know, and they, they've, in many ways, these watch brands have shot themselves in the foot by constantly producing new stuff. Whereas, like we were talking about before. Um, you know, a couple of times a year, or basically once a year, they would produce new things. That would be the, they would be the new models. Now, this constant sort of conveyor belt of new pieces, it, it must be making it very difficult to come up with designs that are. I mean, it's all very well coming up with a new idea, but it's got to be plausible, hasn't it? It's got to be something that people want. Well, I've come to the conclusion that the real reason they come out with new watches so often is to avoid spending money in advertising. They do so because they get media out of it, oh, yeah. and they need that media so that they're constantly in the uh, the conversation, so to say. Of course. And they know that enough media will cover something new so that they'll get, you know, an, quote unquote, enough awareness. Exactly. Well, well, that was that was the whole point of these crazy watches of the two thousands, wasn't it? You know, as much as to 
uh, you know, to be new. It was it was so people like us would have something to write about because it doesn't matter how you look at it. There's only there are only so many ways you can write about an Omega Speedmaster. Um, I think that came later. I mean, look, I, I agree. Those watches were things that we preferred to write about, but I think that I disagree that they were written exclusively for us to write about. I think the fact that we wanted to write about it without uh, somebody needed to advertise somewhere made it possible for the MBNFs of the world to exist. But I don't think they were doing it for that reason. I think yeah. later on, the response of the world are like, wait a minute, people will write about crazy stuff, but we'll come out with one of those every once in a while. Yeah. So I think that it was adapted as that later. But at first, I think it was a, yeah. a nice yeah, accident. I'm, I'm really thinking more about, about, about the big brands. I'm not really oh, okay. thinking okay. When, I say, when I say that. I'm not really thinking about MB&F forever. Because, I mean, they were genuine innovators. And they, you know, um, I mean, Grubel Forsey, they, they just wanted to make a fantastic, innovative, and brilliant brilliant piece of engineering, didn't they? They they definitely weren't thinking, you know, let's do something crazy and lots of people write about it. And look at them now, you know, that is a... That's an example of innovation that really has really has worked. So let's look at them now. Grubel Force has said they want to reduce the average price point to increase mm -hmm. up to 500 watches per year from um, a number significantly lower. Does that shock you? You know, like again, like we're 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 so accustomed to being shocked right now because of everything in this industry. Like, like is that even shocking to you? Um, it's, I wouldn't say shocking. It's certainly not surprising. I mean, if you think about the fact that uh, the guy in charge of Grubel Force, you know, you know, w w as it was developing, it was it was Robert and Stephen, wasn't it? Robert Grubel, Stephen Force. Yeah. They were the people that we, you know, we'd go and meet in some hotel, and they'd show us, you know, the one version of their new tourbillon that they had. Um, but like all these things, it's 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 grown, hasn't it? And it's become a well, it's become. A, a commercial brand, albeit one that produces tiny numbers of watches compared to, you know, something like IWC or, or, or Panrave or Omega, you know, it's, it's still tiny. But um, the guy in charge of it now, Antonio Calci, he wants it to be, um, he obviously wants, you know, turnover to be increased and therefore you've got to make more watches and you make more profit. So it doesn't surprise me at all. The fact that the very fact that they put uh, someone in charge in that in that role in a business a business um, role is it was always going to happen. How has your job changed over the last I don't know twenty years? I'm changing topics now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's become the stories are very much starting to come around again, aren't they? You know, the same old stuff. And we was, as we were talking about before, you know, this business about how long it takes to develop a watch and how difficult it is and all the sort of wonderful engineering that goes into it. I mean, it's just not plausible anymore, I don't think. Really, I really don't. And so, um, whereas I may have been sort of writing about those sort of things and sort of promoting, what do you call it, drinking the Kool-Aid, you call it, don't you? <laughs> may have been doing that back then. <laughs> so I think it was sort of justified in the early 2000s because these things were incredible, you know. They were amazing pieces of engineering, regardless of how many were sold or whether or not they worked or whether anyone wanted them. They were still, it was still great fun to write about it. And, you know, those trips to those watches were something to really look forward to. But there was always something that didn't make sense. I mean, I, I thought I was the only one that thought it and apparently I, it wasn't just me, but you'd go to the Basel worlds, you'd see the amount of money being thrown around and you just do some 
you know, casual math in your mm. head. And you would ask yourself, you know, what type of industry out there would, would allow to support all this. And, and the arithmetic just didn't make sense a lot. You just let it go. Yeah. But for years, you're like, wait, okay, explain this to me again. And we just continue to have these like questions you know, like like th like the dogma didn't make sense, so we have to ask. But they're telling us not to. You know exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, on 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 that topic, I mean, what amazes me is that the wider world doesn't recognise the massive profit margins that these luxury brands make. I mean, Bernard Arnault isn't one of the richest. Well, I think he's actually the richest man in Europe, isn't he, Bernard Arnault? And that's not because he's selling yeah, probably brilliant products at reasonable prices. It's because LVMH is making objects and sticking, you know, two or three noughts on the <laughs> on the end of it. And people are, I mean, I was in Paris yesterday, went past, you know, some of these, um, several of these sort of blue chip luxury stores, you know, Chanel and Hermes and Louis Vuitton. On a, on a Sunday afternoon in the rain, people were standing there queuing up to get in and people will, will suck it up. And Hey, it's the price for beautiful. You buy these things. Their branding has convinced you that that owning it, holding it, wearing it makes you beautiful. That's their product. And you know what? It's successful. People feel beautiful wearing the more successful French luxury goods. Well, of course. That's yeah, a it, very successful thing they've sold. But it's it's still to, to to me, it still seems surprising that they don't they don't look at the two ends of the spectrum, the thing they're buying and the people who are uh benefit benefiting from the sales and see and, and don't wonder where this enormous profit comes from. It's just strange. This is why corporations vote against social welfare pro welfare programs. <laughs> they don't want people to be smart. We know this. <laughs> it's always been that way. I mean, every major economy survives because of a relatively dumb consumer economy. And we allow, we validate gambling. We're like, yeah, make risks on money. I mean, insurance, if you think about it, it's a form of gambling. We have all kinds of things where we're like, risky investments go wild. They want people to lose so other people can win. It's just part of how capitalism goes. Somebody always has to be exploited. You just don't want it to be you. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. Um, that goes back <laughs> to something else that we were speaking about before, beforehand, which is you know the sort of um, the, the possibility that some of these less expensive watch brands, you know, people may start to realize that there's not such a huge difference between a the five hundred dollar, thousand dollar watches, uh, under three thousand dollar watches, you might think, or a four, five, six thousand um, dollar, you know, and it might people might realise they can buy, have a greater quantity of interesting things and build a, a legitimate collection without having to spend money on the the sort of recognised pieces that, that that many people feel you have to have. Do you, do you think there's any? This is where we. Well, this is a great topic to end. We're gonna like go a few extra seconds here or minutes you you know again we you discussed this before and we're going to bring it up now i think the topic is do you need to spend the traditional high amount of money to be a very happy watch collector today and if that's the case how does that fundamentally change the industry that you and i cover right yeah that's the question yeah i mean is it is it going when you can buy we, we spoke earlier didn't we about the corona tokyo um the Asioka. Uh, watches, which they're very difficult to get for people that, that don't know. Um, Asioka puts them on the website. And they're only they're only available to buy for a limited period of time, minutes, in fact. Again, he doesn't and he doesn't say how many he's going to make because 
there've been too many instances of people buying them and then immediately putting them into auction and you know sort of flipping them. But when watches like of that quality and of that with that design aesthetic, which is a pretty sort of classic vintage looking chronograph, for example, when they're around for a thousand dollars, twelve hundred dollars, and albeit difficult to obtain, they are there. Surely that's going to make people think, well, do I really need to spend seven or eight thousand on something that many other people may already have? Why don't I buy ten of these instead? It's got to have some sort of effect eventually. Just what I'm saying. I mean, I, I think it will have a, a bit of an effect, but I mean, it's, it's going to be many years before it's a, before it has a widespread impact on the on the recognised brands because it's simply because they've got this huge, um, you know, marketing budget. They can make them. They can keep their prominence. Can't they? Well, I, I think what you're saying is very interesting, and I don't have a I don't have a ton of sympathy for the brands because for me, luxury is a moving target. You're supposed to be the best of the best and stay ahead of the curve. Eventually, costs are going to come down and you're always going to chase um, you know, the, the competition who's <clears throat> trying to keep up with you. And in a lot of ways, that's worked well. Um, you know, now it's the fakes, but it used to be you know, the low-cost alternatives kept the luxury brands on their toes. And arguably, a Rolex wouldn't be as good as it is if a Seiko didn't get amazing. Yeah. So... You know, what you have is is the situation where eventually you're going to assume that the current best of the best that the luxury industry can offer is going to be made at a lower price. And that tomorrow you're going to have to have something even fancier. It's going to have to be this game of cat and mouse between the luxury brands and the mainstream brands is trying to emulate it. And you see it in fashion and cars and everything. Eventually the mainstream catches up. And unless the luxury stays a little bit ahead, it, it, it doesn't really have anything to offer compared to it. And consumers want the lowest price to get the highest quality at the end of the day. And that is something which is very, very real. So well, it's the quality, I don't it's the quality sympathize aspect, with it. isn't it? It's, it's, it's become easier to make a really high quality product. Over the yeah, but they got to keep setting the bar higher and higher, but, is my point. But, but, but it's, it's because it's easier, it's also less, expen- less expensive. So more people are getting into it. And, you know, I mean, there are brands in the UK that, are, I don't know, that, for example, Fairer watches. You know, you know Fairer? They make these designs yeah, in the UK. Yeah, they're, they're on a blog to watch. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're a great watch. They're lovely looking, nice design, good quality. They're not going to fall apart. But they're a fraction of the, the, the equivalent of, a, a you know, a more established brand. And it, that has to have an effect, doesn't it? I mean, anyone who's bought one of those watches has not bought... A, a comparative one from a um, from a from a more historic brand. So, so you say this as someone who got into watches because your love of the product, your love of quality, and an acknowledgement that you had to spend a lot to get something great. Now you're recognizing that you can have a great experience for not a lot, and it makes you fundamentally question the viability of the higher end side, at least from the perspective of selling the highest quality good. Well, yeah, it does. I mean, there's, there's always like, like I was saying before about Langer. I don't think, I don't think it's going to be very easy for anyone to produce a watch of that quality for you know, for a bargain price. It's just not going to happen. And, and I suppose equally with the best Pateks. But, I mean, it's often said, you know, a Nautilus. It's a steel cased, three hand watch. I mean, what, what what's the, what's the big difficulty nowadays in producing that watch? I've always said the Nautilus should cost about thirteen thousand bucks. Well, there you are. That's what I've always said. There you are. But um, which is still a lot of money for a steel, you know, three hand watch. 
Well, it is. It is. But I mean, you, there is quality there, obviously. And sure. Patrick Philippe has a name and they're not going to make a watch that is rubbish. They're just not going to do it. Um, it's not rubbish. It just doesn't need to cost what it does. Exactly. But, you know, all, all the time people are willing to pay that money, they're going to do it. And I very much doubt if the... Because we've we've extended beyond people buying watches for watches. And that is really the new, the brave new era. Yeah. Watches still need to be made as good watches. At the end of the day, that is still going to be important. But that alone is not going to move the needle for enough people. And, you know, I was I, I do consulting for brands all the time. And what, some of the things I say to them is like, okay, if you don't do any marketing at all with a quality product like this, you're going to do great. It's just going to take you about 20 years to get as popular as you want to get, to have as many people out there know about what you do as possible without really marketing. It's going to take you about 20 years. If you market, you can speed that up because more people are going to learn about it faster and the story is going to get out there faster. And, and that's that's an option there. But if you don't do anything... Just can, just don't don't get worried that five years from now nobody cares because it's not long enough. It just takes that long, um, and that's a re- that's a that's a real thing. Exactly. Well, the, the example of that is is with the Big Bang, isn't it? I mean, that was you know marketed to the nth degree, and it, it went from zero to zero to hero. I suppose you could say, couldn't you? In what in a year for eighteen months? You know, it was a, it was a yeah. A, known, a known name by anyone who, who knew anything about watches or was interested in watches. So I think what's what we're going to have to do is have you back on the show again, because, Simon, this has been a great conversation. We can go all over the place. We're already nearly 10 minutes over, and um, I hope we, haven't upset uh, too we many have people. to put limits on these things. What's that? I hope we haven't upset too many people. Um, you, you have to upset a few people, otherwise it's not a good show, but you're right. There's a line that you have to, you know, <laughs> you have to walk between. Um, but this has been great. Simon, where can people find more of your work? <clears throat> where can they learn more about you? Plug whatever you want. Well, I mean, I haven't got a lot to plug, I'm afraid, because, you know, I, haven't, I don't have any social media presence at all. But if you type my name into uh, Google, you'll find a few stories. And if you'd like to type in uh, my name in ft.com, you'll find You'll find Simon is truly prolific. Uh, his name pops up everywhere. I've been seeing it in a lot of contexts. One of the people that I re- respect as a colleague and one of the people that's been doing this longer than me. Simon, will you come back for another chat? I'd love to, Ariel. No, very kind of you. And it, was, it was great to see you the other day because I haven't seen you for a long time. So uh, great to see you at the uh, at the Godfather. In little, Sicily. In Sicily, yeah. yeah. that was Maybe that's something we can talk about more next time. Everyone, this has been the Superlative Podcast with my guest, Simon DeBurton. Simon, thank you so much. Thanks, Ariel. Nice to talk. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blogtowatch.com. <laughs>